I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Tortoise. Hi, it's Basha here and you're listening to the Slow Newscast from Tortoise. This week, we've got something special for you, a story that my colleague Alexi Mostras, the host of our hit shows Sweet Bobby and Hoaxed, has been working on. In 2014, a Jordanian man was imprisoned in Ras al-Khaimah, the northernmost emirate in the UAE. He alleges that he's been illegally detained and threatened, and the man that he blames for it, a British lawyer called Neil Gerrard. And the most striking thing is, it's not the only accusation that Neil Gerrard is facing. He's also been accused of fraud, corruption, hacking, and complicity to torture and inhumane treatment across multiple cases. And so Alexei has been investigating these claims and what they tell us about how far London's legal establishment might be willing to go for its clients. I'll hand over to Alexei. When I imagine the home of a city lawyer, it's got to be somewhere like this. A beautiful 18th century country house, a swimming pool, more than 50 acres of gardens, right next to the ancient Ashdown Forest. This might be an unpopular view, but I actually think most lawyers deserve the fruits of their labours. If you're at a big law firm, you do work pretty hard. We're talking 14-hour days, late-night calls, missed dinner parties whenever your client has a deal going through. In return, the top lawyers are paid millions of pounds a year. But being a lawyer isn't just about making money. It's about trust. Clients trust lawyers to fight their corner, to defend them in their darkest moments. But a lawyer's duties go beyond that. Society trusts lawyers too, trusts them not to abuse the judicial process, not to put their clients' interests above the rule of law. So what happens when that trust is abused? What happens when a powerful lawyer uses his privileged position allegedly to impede justice rather than promote it? This is a story about one such lawyer, facing some of the most serious allegations ever levelled against a member of his profession. I've never seen anything like that before, never even heard of anything like that before. A man who you might have guessed once owned this magnificent house. Hi, Karam. Um, Hi. hi. Um, I'll let everyone introduce themselves who's here. Hi, Karam. Uh, this is Alexi um, from, from Tortoise Media. Uh, hello, Alexi. My name is Karam Sadiq. I'm an inmate in uh, Ras Al Khaimah Central Prison in UAE. And I'm calling you from the prison. I've been in this prison since early 2016, till date. Before that, I have been in different kind of uh, prisons uh, since uh, the 4th of September 2014. When Karam's call comes in, I'm sitting in a small windowless office in central London, just behind Chancery Lane. This is London's historic legal quarter. Barristers and solicitors have worked here since the 15th century in self-contained precincts called the Inns of Court. Walking into one is a bit like leaving the modern world. No cars, 
cobbled streets, the names of the law firms hand-painted onto the old wooden doors. So it's a bit surreal sitting here, in this place of cosseted safety, listening to Karam describe his own conditions. Each room has 18 beds. Uh, today, right now, my room has, I think, 22 inmates. People would be sleeping on the floor, on uh, yeah, in very close proximity. You wake up, you stay within this, these parameters uh, from early morning, you're counted once, and at night you're counted again. Uh, but I can tell you for a fact, for a financial crime, I've been surrounded by uh, rapists, murderers, and uh, drug dealers with death uh, row hmm. sentences and lifers. So that is uh, the prison. The audio quality of these calls isn't great. They were all recorded on a mobile phone's loudspeaker, but it was the only way I could speak to Karam directly. His phone calls are all monitored. The prison authorities know exactly who he's talking to. If he disobeys these rules, if he lends his phone to another prisoner or he dials an unauthorised number, he's punished. So, as Karam starts to tell his story to me, I know he's taking a big risk. Talking to a journalist could have serious consequences. This is the first time he's ever given an interview. But Karam is desperate. He's tried everything else. And now, after almost a decade in prison, he has nothing to lose. The total destruction of uh, everything that a man seeks to have at uh, in life, basically, the career, the reputation, the money, and the ambition, the family, and, of course, to some extent, the health. Karam Al-Sadek is someone I naturally relate to. We're both the same age in our early 40s. We both trained as lawyers before moving into other professions. We both have youngish kids who are growing up too fast. So... When Karam says that he hasn't seen his children since 2016, hasn't seen his wife either, it hits me quite hard. Uh, stranger to my kids. Married to say they still survive, however, you can imagine what a, a good nine years would do on that. Karam claims that he's been wrongfully imprisoned forced into signing a false confession, left to languish in a cell in Raz al-Khaimah, a little-known Arab emirate. And I feel a bit bad for saying this, but that story isn't of itself that surprising. Human rights campaigners have been documenting miscarriages of justice in that region, in the United Arab Emirates, for years. It's not what happened to Karam that's shocking. It's who he blames. Definitely one of the main factors of my imprisonment and all the violating of my rights and my family's rights uh, throughout the last 10 years have been Neil Gerard. Neil Gerard. Not a name you'd necessarily know, but you'd recognise that it's a British name, not Emirati. Neil Gerrard isn't a random prison guard or a corrupt local judge. He's a highly successful lawyer based in London, until recently a partner in a top legal firm called Deckert's, which has offices all over the world. If you look at a photo of Gerrard, he doesn't jump out as a power player. There's no Hermes tie or glitzy Rolex. In fact, with his receding hairline and rumpled suits, he looks more like a veteran cop than a legal hotshot, more line of duty than suits. And that makes sense because Gerard used to be a police officer in a rough part of London before he retrained as a lawyer. By 2012, when he joined Deckard as its head of white-collar litigation, he was on millions of pounds a year. Someone so high-profile that his name was once linked as the next head of Britain's serious fraud office. How did someone like that come to be accused of complicity to torture, illegal rendition, abduction, 
and inhumane and degrading treatment. And what does Neil Gerrard's case tell us about London's legal establishment and how far it's willing to go for its clients? I'm Alexi Mostras, and this is a slow newscast from Tortoise. RAC, as Raz al-Khaimah is known, is part of the United Arab Emirates, the Middle Eastern country sandwiched between Qatar and Oman. The UAE is made up of seven semi-autonomous regions. You've got the capital Abu Dhabi, and slightly further up the coast, Dubai, the favourite holiday destination for many an Instagram influencer. But if you keep going up the coast, about 100 kilometres, away from the skyscrapers, right to the top of the country, you come to Rack. diverse landscape of beaches, mangroves, deserts and mountains. And with archaeological evidence of life here dating back 7,000 years, Ras al-Hema provides travellers an opportunity to experience authentic Middle Eastern culture. While Abu Dhabi and Dubai can rely on their rich oil reserves, Rack has no decent oil fields, so it's had to build up other industries instead. The Emirate is developing itself as a tourist hub. 80,000 Brits visit its mountains and mangrove swamps each year. It's also, randomly, a massive manufacturer of ceramics. Your toilet seat might well have a little Rack ceramic stamp on it. But the Emirate of Rack also has a darker side. According to a 2014 Amnesty International report, prisoners are sometimes held there for months without due process until they confess to whatever crimes the Rack authorities want them to, which is exactly what Karam says happened to him. But to tell this story properly, I need to go back a few years, to 2008, a happier time in Karam's life. Karam is in his late 20s then. He's working as an in-house counsel at a property company in Jordan. Due to the financial crisis and the business slowed down, and I think, yes, that would be a good time to actually consider a transfer to Ras al-Khaimah. Karam starts working at Rakia, the Ras al-Khaimah Investment Authority. Basically, Rakia is set up to attract foreign investment into Rak, a very important task for an emirate without much oil. And Karam is Rakia's in-house counsel. It's a job he remembers fondly. I was learning like 10 things a day, and uh, he was generous with his knowledge. In 2012, four years after he starts at Rakia, Karam leaves. No animosity, it's just time to move on. At this point, he's got a six-month-old daughter and his wife, Dima, is expecting a son. It's a good time to take a sabbatical. And I left with, on good terms, with a good uh, bonus gift uh, and a fulfillment settlement paid in full. He moves away from Rak, south to Dubai. That time I left to Dubai for a sabbatical year. Then came, and it throughout like a good two years almost, I did not have any contact from Ras al-Khaimah with Ras al-Khaimah, the 14th September the 4th. September the 4th, 2014. That's the day everything changes for Karam. That night I took my wife to a nice lounge, met a couple of friends. Uh, in my way back, around midnight, to my villa where my kids were sleeping. Uh, I was parking and I, the car was raided by two police cars, basically. The police tell Karam to come with them. They asked me to come with them and I said, why? And I said, you, you will understand it is upon the request of the ruler. He's handcuffed. Under UAE law, he should be taken to Dubai, but he's not. They drove all the way to Ras al-Khaimah. To the police headquarters there. And you will understand that. We don't really understand that much because we're just uh, doing our job. They've taken my uh, phone, belt, wallet, and threw me in a cell that I have stayed in for a good 28 or 29 days. Two years after leaving his job in Rak, Karam is driven back there by force, 
Over the border with Dubai, his lawyers describe this as a kidnapping. Once in Raq, he's thrown in a dirty cell in the central police station. No one tells him why. For a whole month, he stays in that same cell. He's not allowed to change his clothes or clean his teeth. He's not allowed to see a lawyer or see the charges against him. According to Karam, he's denied the most basic rights. But there is one person that he is allowed to see. A few days after his detention begins, Karam says he's taken in the middle of the night, shackled and blindfolded, to an interrogation room. They've tried to intimidate me as much as possible. I was cuffed behind my back, uh, shackled, head covered. I entered the room where Neil Girard and other officers were there. Eventually my head cover was removed, but I remained shackled and cuffed. And he introduced himself and said, we just came back from the palace. And he started his interview by basically saying that he knows everything about me, my whole life, inside out, things that I might even not know he would know. This was in your first meeting with him, your first ever meeting? It was in the first meeting. It was very clear from the very first meeting he said, directly that he came from the palace, he takes his powers from the palace, he's mandated by the, by the ruler directly. Neil Gerard tells Karam that he's working for Sheikh Saud, the 67-year-old ruler of Raq. Gerard says that he's been investigating Karam's former boss, the ex-head of Rakia, a guy called Katam Massad. Massad was close to the ruler, Sheikh Saud, but fell out with him a few years before. Gerard tells Karam that he needs to cooperate with the inquiry into Mossad or bad things will happen. Not just to him, but potentially to his wife, Dima, too. Yeah, he said I have some wrongdoings on Dima as well. According to Karam, Gerard claims Dima embezzled money while on the board of directors of some Lebanese company. But it was a completely different person that he was referring to. She's not the same person, but the same person is Lebanese and my wife is She's Jordanian, and uh, she's just a totally different person. And his answer and reply said, until we actually figure out whether she is or she's not the same person, she would end up in jail for quite some time. Is what you're saying that Neil Gerard made threats against your wife in order to put pressure on you to cooperate? Yeah, I understood that, but I understood as well that he meant it. Uh, he was very graphic. He said, uh, you know, if that happened... Your kids will end up with uh, no one to look after them. They might end up with uh, like some sort of a social, uh, uh, governmental uh, to look after them. And I told him, I think you're taking this too far. If you believe Karam, this is an extraordinary moment. A British solicitor threatening the wife of a man imprisoned in a country known for its lax attitude towards human rights. After his midnight interrogation, Karam is taken back to his cell. He doesn't know it then, but his journey through the bowels of the rack detention system is only just beginning. I should say here that Gerard and Deckard, the international firm of lawyers he worked for, strongly deny Karam's allegations. They say that they never pressured Karam to do anything, never threatened him or his family, and that they behaved properly at all times and in accordance with RAC and UK law. We asked Neil Gerard for an interview, but his lawyer didn't respond to our email. A spokesman for Deckard did respond, telling us the claims made against the firm are denied and will be defended. We do know a bit about what Gerard thinks, though, because Karam has filed a legal case against him in the English High Court, and Gerard has filed a defence to that claim, setting out his position. He basically denies everything. The allegations advanced by the claimant in his particulars of claim are wholly implausible and are entirely denied. Gerard denies saying that he was the law in Raq, or that Karam would never be released unless he cooperated. No threats, Gerard said, were made against Karam's wife. To Gerard and Deckert, 
Karam is a fraudster who was rightly put in jail for his crimes. I can't say who's right and who's wrong. Karam's case against Neil Gerrard is at an early stage. Initial papers have been filed at the High Court, but there's not been a hearing yet. No cross-examination, nothing like that. At some point, possibly next year, a court case will happen and a British judge will decide who is telling the truth. But even before that point, even now, two things are clear. None of the experts I've spoken to about the case can remember a British lawyer ever facing allegations like those now levelled against Neil Gerrard. And the second thing is that Karam is by no means the first person to allege that the former Metropolitan Police Officer has behaved badly. About a month after Karam was thrown into a cell in Raq, he's moved to a new prison camp called Al-Bararat. Al-Bararat is Sheikh Saud's private detention facility. According to Karam, conditions there are just as harsh. So I would, waking up one day, switch on the lights, just look at the same ceiling for days and days and months and months. And um, that was the scary part. I was basically going, going a little bit insane. While Karam is in prison, his wife, Dima, is desperately trying to work out what happened. She visits the Rack police. She speaks to Neil Gerrard. She even makes contact with Sheikh Saud himself. At this point, Karam says, Gerrard's team start putting Dima under pressure, urging her to get him to cooperate. It's around this time that Dima starts noticing cars circling around her home. She spots men on the streets watching her property. Rack police officers search the family home, confiscating laptops and other items. They are, Karam claims, under the direction of one of Neil Gerrard's Deckert colleagues, another British lawyer called Caroline Black. The lowest blow comes when a Rack police chief tells Dima that Karam has cheated on her. I think it's to try and drive a wedge between them. Do you know that when he was in Rasul Khaimah, he had like tons of girlfriends that he had actually leased houses and apartments for? So sometimes uh, he would split the night among two girlfriends. Which is absolutely not true because I was engaged to her before even arriving to UAE and we got married in six months. And, yeah. uh, she was staying with me. Yeah, no, no, they, they're willing to do absolutely anything. You won't be surprised to hear that all of this is denied by Neil Gerrard, Caroline Black and Deckert. But they don't deny that shortly after Karam is put in jail, Rack imposes a two-year travel ban on Dima and the kids, preventing them from leaving the Emirate. When Karam tells me about the alleged pressure put on his family, I'm pretty shocked but maybe I shouldn't have been. All over the UAE, and particularly in Ras al-Khaimah, they would definitely put pressure on family members. They even detain family members. Sometimes they have been obscene, threatening to rape family members, uh, daughters, sisters, mothers. Sometimes they jail a family member and accuse them of the same crime just because they're related to you. And so generally, if someone's arrested and their family is outside of the country, they can't go in to visit them at all because they'll also be arrested. It's a huge abuse and it happens all over the country. Radha Sterling is the founder of Detained in Dubai, a support group for people, mostly expats, who get into trouble in the United Arab Emirates. She's also one of Karam's advisors. Radha tells me that she's not surprised that Deckert and Neil Gerrard were working for the UAE. The UAE are potentially huge and profitable clients. They pay a fortune to law firms. They pay over and above what a British company would pay and they're very attractive clients. They're going to come with a lot of business. When I click on the Law Society website, I learn an extraordinary fact. The UAE is home to the highest number of English lawyers outside the UK and Hong Kong. And while most of their work in the region is uncontroversial, for Radha, the implications of this legal boom trouble her. I think when lawyers go over to the UAE and they see the way the, the Emirates culturally and professionally um, act, they start becoming involved. They think that 
you know, they, they enter that culture and they forget that they should be adhering to British procedures. So rather than convincing Sheikh Saud or whoever their client is that they should be acting in this particular British way that they, they're under, that they're licensed under, instead they start feeling a bit overconfident. They start taking on the persona, in a sense, and crossing lines that they wouldn't usually cross. While Radha isn't surprised at Deckert's work with Rack, she is shocked at how far Deckert and Neil Gerrard are alleged to have gone, not just representing Rack, but acting effectively as its enforcement agent on the ground. I think in that case, Deckert is unusual in that they've put themselves on the line, that they've gone over to the UAE and they've acted on their soil, on behalf of Sheikh Saad al-Qasimi, kind of thinking that they have immunity because it's not in the United Kingdom, thinking that they're in the UAE, they're following UAE law, and that's going to protect them. When I first heard about Neil Gerrard, I thought he was one of the good guys. In 2017, Gerard was being sued in the English High Court by a Kazakh mining company called ENRC. ENRC is really controversial. It's been dogged for years by multiple corruption allegations, which it denies. The mining company had employed Neil Gerard to investigate some of these corruption allegations, to work out what was going on and how to fix it. But instead, Gerard started handing information about ENRC, about his client, to Britain's serious fraud office. On the face of it, this is a massive breach of a lawyer's duty. But I remember having some sympathy. Maybe Gerard was a whistleblower. Maybe he thought ENRC's alleged wrongdoing outweighed his legal obligations to the mining firm. But then the ENRC court case started to reveal details of Gerard's alleged behaviour. In a 386-page judgment, the judge in the case found that Gerard had breached his duty to ENRC in order to increase his fees. Gerard reportedly told colleagues that he was going to screw these fuckers for 25 million, that he was in rape mode when it came to fees. In other words, for Gerard, it seemed this wasn't about blowing a whistle. It was about the money. When I speak to people who know Gerard, journalists who've written about him, they all say ENRC was a turning point. So I am Krish Nye, I'm deputy editor at Law.com. The moment when a legal Icarus flew too close to the sun. Neil Gerard is one of perhaps the most influential white-collar crime lawyers the country has ever seen, perhaps even right around the world, he gained an esteem that pretty much every white-collar crime lawyer is familiar with. And he did that by working incredibly hard through building a portfolio of clients um, that was the envy of pretty much every white-collar crime lawyer in the city of London. He garnered as much praise and admiration as he did infamy. And that was primarily through the ENRC case, which is a decade-long case, which is still ongoing, which is really a rundown of allegations of wrongdoing that, he, that we never would have associated with the, the straight-laced nature of corporate law. Krish is the deputy editor of Law.com, and he's written a lot about Neil Gerrard. The man he describes actually doesn't sound like a monster. Krish told me that Gerard is loved by more people than hate him. But maybe it's his background as a copper. Gerard seems to have always been prepared to play harder than his competitors. I think Neil Gerard's background really tells us who he is and why he might have made the decisions that he did that has landed both himself and his former firm into the hot water that it now finds itself. Speak to anyone that worked with Neil Gerard, they would have said that he was an incredibly hardworking, incredibly ambitious man. He was also a policeman marshalling the streets of Peckham during the times of race riots. So he really kind of built up that steeliness that some suggest informed how he conducted himself in the legal sphere. If the ENRC case was bad for Gerard and for Deckert, it was nothing compared to what happened next. Gerard and Deckert had started working for Sheikh Saud, the ruler of Ras al-Khaimah, in 2014, and their task wasn't just to target Karam. 
It was to go after other enemies of the regime, other individuals who were accused by Rack of fraud. One of those enemies was a US-based businessman called Farhad Azima. In 2016, Rack's investment arm, Rakia, you remember the company that Karam worked for, sued Azima for fraud. Rakia's lawyers said that the fraud was proven by thousands of Azima's private emails, which just happened to have mysteriously appeared online months before the case. For his part, Azima claimed Rakia had hacked the emails. He wanted them excluded from evidence. But Neil Gerrard, who gave evidence for Rakia, told the High Court of England he had innocently stumbled across these emails. His story was that a friendly journalist had found them and had handed them over. To suggest otherwise was preposterous, Gerard said. The judge was suspicious, but he allowed the evidence to be used and he found Azima liable for fraud. But then something happened which totally undermined Gerard's account and the whole case against Fahad Azima. There was a private investigator called Stuart Page who worked for Rack just like Neil Gerrard. During the English court case, Page backed up Gerrard's story about how they had innocently come across Azima's emails. But 18 months later, in a separate US court case, Page told a totally different story. He now claimed that the Azima documents had come from hacking via a former Israeli intelligence officer who worked for Page. I apologise unreservedly for the part I played in misleading the court during the first trial. Neil Gerrard had not only known that Azima's emails were hacked, Page said, but he was so desperate to rely on them in court that he tried to cover it up. Page claimed that he'd travelled to Switzerland a few weeks before the trial, changing trains three times to avoid detection, to meet Gerrard at a five-star hotel buried deep in the mountains. An effort was made to perfect a narrative that we were to tell the English court about how I had discovered the hacked data through Majesty. He and Gerard drank fine wine and in between living it up, came up with a full story about what they would tell the judge. The story of the friendly journalist stumbling across the emails. In other words, Page claims he and Gerard conspired to deceive the British High Court, to cover up a hacking-for-hire operation. As a result of Page's retraction, the British courts have now granted Farhad Azima a partial retrial, which should take place sometime next year. Deckert and Neil Gerrard both say they will defend themselves against Azima's claim. In another defence... Gerard said that he had no involvement or knowledge of hacking of Azima's data. He said he didn't participate in any cover-up or coaching of witnesses, and he claimed that Azima's claims are inconsistent and have continually shifted. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. 
Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Karam is still in his small cell at the Al-Bararat camp, still in solitary confinement. For the first seven months until he went on a hunger strike, he wasn't allowed outside at all. Even now, he's not allowed any visits from his family or access to a lawyer. After so many months inside, the skin on his legs begins to rot. Of course, needless to say, due to the lack of sun and lack of movement, had my skin to actually rot. I've seen the colours changing from red to blue to black to yellow. Eventually a doctor used to come sometimes and he said to me personally, he said, if you remain here and that rotting was spread more, you will simply die. Was Neil Gerard aware of that? Was, did Neil Gerard know about that? Neil Gerard knows everything, knows when I eat, when I don't, when I decide to go on uh, hunger strikes, uh, he knows everything. Did he ever, did he ever comment on your, your legs or your, your, what was happening with your skin? No, he, he keeps on saying, it's in your head. He laughs about it. And, and do, do you think that the way that he treated you in uh, the Albirarat camp was illegal under rat law. It was illegal under the gods of law, the gods of human beings. Eat wherever, whenever. It's torture, abusing, it's violating, it's everything. During his confinement, Karam says his meetings with Neil Gerard and the RAC authorities continue. It's clear now that they don't just want Karam to cooperate. They want him to confess. They want him to admit that Karam conspired with his boss, Qatar Massad, to defraud the state. According to Karam, he's repeatedly threatened by Gerard and two of his British colleagues at Deckard, a guy called David Hughes and Caroline Black, the Deckard lawyer who he claims supervised the search of his house. Karam alleges he was told by these lawyers, you can have showers and see sunlight if you cooperate. And if he didn't, his wife would be arrested and his children taken into care. And he would use the carrot, sometimes he would use uh, the stick, or mainly the stick. Caroline Black and David Hughes have since left Deckard and couldn't be reached for comment. But in their legal defence, they say... It is denied that Mr Gerard and Miss Black, and from on or about September 2015, Mr Hughes, were central figures in the interrogation and prosecution of the claimant. It is similarly denied that there were any threats made by the defendants against the claimant or his wife. Mr Hughes did not join Deckert until mid-September 2014 and had no involvement in matters directly relating to the claimant until on or about September 2015. Miss Black's involvement in matters related to the claimant decreased over time and she had minimal involvement from the start of 2016. Karam's incarceration continues. Sometime in the second half of 2015, James Buchanan, a British-Canadian who's kind of a personal advisor to the ruler of Rack, comes to Karam with a promise, direct from Sheikh Saud. A promise that effectively says, sign a confession and you'll be released. He's read the promise, once this is finished, uh, you will be out back to your family and your house and so on and so forth. And back then, Dima, I remember Dima asking, when you said... To his house, is it a home arrest? As in my home arrest in Dubai, in my own house. Uh, he said, no, 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 no home arrest, no nothing. You just basically get out. James Buchanan happens to be a family friend of Neil Gerrard. He owns a house next door to Gerrard's in East Sussex. And now both men are in rack, allegedly offering Karam his freedom in exchange for a confession. A confession to a crime that Karam says... He didn't commit. 
Karam is suspicious, but he thinks that maybe if he signs, his wife and his children will be allowed to leave the country. I didn't believe a word of it. I didn't relate this to my wife. But again, as I told you, I was hoping that at least a part of the travel ban that was fixed on her and the kids would be lifted. Uh, other than that, I didn't believe I would ever get out of this with false confessions or no false confessions. But I was hoping for a small collateral, which is basically to be lifted, which is the demand the kids. That's it. Karam asks for the promise to be written down, but Buchanan says that's not possible. Karam doesn't have much leverage, so eventually, on the 2nd of September 2015, almost a year exactly after he was first arrested, he signs an agreement to cooperate. A month later, a rat court formally sentences Karam to eight years in prison. But there's no sign that he's going to be released. Dima, Karam's wife, does something drastic. She writes to the ruler directly to Sheikh Saud. My husband is nothing to you but a number. We have no more hope left after the continuous promises and Karam's continued cooperation. We have only been left worse off. It works. In April 2016, Karam is placed under house arrest in Raq. He's not free, not by any means, but it's better than prison. Dima can see him but she has to be strip-searched first. It's a short respite. In June 2016, Dima's travel ban is lifted. She and the kids decide to fly home to Jordan, away from her husband, but towards safety. And then, in August 2016, frustrated about his situation, Karam sends his own text message to Sheikh Saud. Instead of being released from house arrest, Karam was hauled back to Raz al-Khaimah's central prison, where he remains to this day. You may ask how we know all this detail about Neil Gerard's alleged behaviour, because these sort of cases would normally play out underneath the radar, cloaked in the mantle of legal privilege. And the answer is court documents. Thousands of pages of them, from the ENRC case, from Fahad Azima, in court cases in the UK and the US, I've never come across a story where so much secretive and controversial activity has been laid bare in publicly accessible papers. Allegations of professional negligence, dishonesty, secret meetings and computer hacking, all set out in forensic detail. And that's even before we get to Karam's case, where, as I was to learn, nefarious techniques may also have been used. I was first contacted by uh, Justine Detroit, and she said that she represented a Moroccan billionaire and yet approached me with a Gmail address, so I was already very suspicious. It's March 2020. Radha Sterling, the boss of Detained in Dubai, and one of the people trying to bring attention to Karam's case, starts to receive some strange emails. Emails asking her to click on websites which require her to enter her passwords. She ignores them, but she takes more notice of an email she gets from a mysterious woman called Justine, who says she works for a Moroccan billionaire, someone who seems very interested in Karam's case. So she contacted me looking for information on all of the players in Ras al-Khaimah. So that's Hatem Assad, Karam, everyone in this litigation as well, Osama al-Amari in America. I spoke to uh, the security team, asked them to look into it. And 
I sort of did back and forth communication with Justine. Did the security team say, keep, keep it going? Keep it going, yes. Radha's team go on the offensive. Her security team tell her to keep talking to Justine so they can try and work out where this is all coming from. Things come to a head when Radha receives something called an ASX file. What's an ASX file? It's it's an attachment, executable attachment that could have taken over all of the contents of my phone had I been using an Android. Wow, that's scary. It was, and it was clearly coming from Russell Kemmer. And and did you ever manage to find out who Justine was? No, unfortunately we never did. Radha is not the only member of Karam's team who suspects they were targeted by hackers connected to Rack. When Karam's UK lawyer flew out to Dubai to try and visit Karam in prison, he returned to his hotel room to find the doors open and papers disturbed. And private investigators working for Rack were allegedly instructed to obtain confidential finance and phone records from Karam's PR firm. None of this is proven yet. It's all allegations, denied by Gerard and Deckard and untested in court. But I know weird things were happening because... I witnessed some of them directly. We should talk about the fact that during the interview, there was a, a WhatsApp number calling, calling UAE the, number, a UAE number calling that phone, and it's right that no one else has this number apart from Karam. It was two separate UAE numbers. They're different. Oh, no, sorry, it's the same number. It's the same number. When I interviewed Karam, it was through a mobile phone belonging to his lawyer, a mobile phone specifically bought only for that purpose and only Karam had the number. But during one of my interviews, these weird mobile phone numbers started to pop up on the screen, buzzing as I was speaking to Karam. The numbers were all from the UAE. Are you you going to give her a call? Oh, I think, yeah, okay. Let's Mr. Call from this number. (laughs) You're not getting involved. The hacking allegations in the Azima case, the case where the judge ordered a retrial, were seriously embarrassing to Sheikh Saud and to Rack. So it's not that surprising that the Emirate appears to have thrown Neil Gerrard, its former champion, under a bus. Gerard was a dishonest witness who engaged in serious wrongdoing, Rakia, the country's investment authority, said in 2022. Apparently, Rak was just a mere unwitting victim of Gerard's dishonesty. Let's just say I'm raising my eyebrow at that. I should also say, Gerard is bringing his own claim against ENRC and a private investigations company employed by the mining group to spy on him. The private investigators allegedly behaved pretty badly. They hooked up a motion-sensitive camera outside Gerard's farmhouse in Sussex, even following him and his wife on a Caribbean holiday. And there are signs that the last few years have taken their toll on Neil Gerard. He resigned as a partner in 2020 and he sold his estate, that beautiful country house in Sussex. The solicitor's regulator is thought to be investigating Gerard after the High Court judge in the ENRC case sent them his judgment. Rumours are that he's relocated to the south of France, which actually doesn't sound like too much of a punishment. But whatever pains Gerard is suffering... They pale into nothing when compared to Karam. And Karam is certain that justice has yet to be served. It's not something vindictive, but I think uh, nothing short than one, them, the, the credibility being down to zero. And they have to face some time in prison eventually. Everybody responsible of what happened to me and others. The law shouldn't have two faces. 
they have done wrong, they have hacked, they have abused, they have illegally detained, and uh, I hope one day they will end up in the same situation that I'm in today. Towards the end of our final interview, I asked Karam a question that I thought might give some hope to this story. The answer was devastating. Do you think that you'll ever be released? Factually, put the hope aside, no. For Karam, it seems the thought that drives him, the thing that motivates him, isn't his own freedom. It's his family's. He may have been lied to, tricked into signing a false confession, but he doesn't regret it. His actions, he claims, kept his family safe. Still, that would be the best decision that I have ever made and the sweetest deal that I have ever struck with anybody. If any of Karam's allegations against Rack, Deckert and Gerard are true, it tells us something important about how power works in 2023. What it says to me is, if you're the leader of somewhere like Rack, or if you're an oligarch, or a business leader with enough money, and you want to target your enemies, you've got a whole array of tools at your disposal. Secret tools that wouldn't be available to you or me. Hacking, subterfuge, social media manipulation. And it seems there's a whole respectable legal system in Britain set up to coordinate it. Take care, Karam. Take care. Bye. Bye. This episode of the Slow Newscast was reported by me, Alexi Mostras, produced by Matt Russell, with sound design by Carla Patella. The editor was Jasper Corbett. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, I'm John Curtis. And I'm Rachel Wolfe. This week on Trendy, the monarchy. A year after the coronation and as King Charles returns to work, what do we think of it? And how has that changed over time? To listen to the episode, search for... Trendy on Tortoise News, wherever you get your podcasts and follow the feed to make sure you don't miss an episode.